0: You may be seated. Father, we look forward to that day in which our great king, our great high priest, our savior, our redeemer comes for those whom he has ransomed. Father, we wait expectantly for that day in which we get to see Jesus face to face. And we get to say, hallelujah, we have waited so long and you have come. Father, as we look at your word this morning, as we look to the teaching of our king this morning, I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who may suspect that serving you and walking after your son leads to an unfair difficulty or an unfair reality, I pray, Lord, that you would drive that thought from their minds. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word this morning, we would see that it is unfair but that it is heavily slanted in our favor and for our blessing and our goodness. We thank you for your unfair mercy and grace in our life. We celebrate and we worship you. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Undoubtedly, you heard this last week that Billy Graham's son, Franklin, was coming to do a a revival in Vancouver. And the mayor of Vancouver essentially put out a statement saying that he discouraged him from coming, stating that his values were not the values of Vancouver. That Vancouver had different values than those that were being represented by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and the revival that Franklin, his son, was attempting to hold there in Vancouver. I had opportunity to sit and have coffee with several of you this last week, and uh, the comment was made, and, and we understand this to be the reality of our situation. The comment was made that the Christian life at times can just seem so unfair. Here is a man who has come on behalf of his God, the one whom he worships, in order to present the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation with a mighty, merciful Christ. And he is ostracized, he is ridiculed, he is made fun of for it. We see that and we think, why is the world so tolerant of so much depravity and yet when the offer of forgiveness is presented free of charge, when grace is proclaimed, that should be met with such hostility and such ridicule. It seems so unfair. And we take a step back and we Reflect on this and we realize there are many things about being a Christian that are just extremely unfair. If you are here this morning and you consider yourself an all-millennial or a pre-millennial, undoubtedly you think my preaching these last several weeks has been unfair. <laughs> the truth is, though, if you're here and you're a pre-millennial, you think maybe the sermon from last week or the one from a couple of times before that was also unfair. unfair. I've had every stripe and every type of eschatological position, an individual who holds that position, including my own, come to me and say, I'm unfair. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear those, that re- report and that feedback because if I'm unfair to all of you, then I think I'm being fair to all of you. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm hitting the nail on the head. Undoubtedly, as we're working our way through the text, you'll recall Uh, From the very beginning, the very first message that was preached on Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, I said, essentially what we need to do is we need to recognize that this is not a point of division for Christians, that we can hold to different beliefs with regards to eschatology. We are called by Christ not to be deceived, which means we need to come to some concrete conviction about this. And yet, at the same time, coming to a concrete conviction about this, we are not necessarily called to argue with our brothers and sisters about what we have come to a conviction about with regards to this particular doctrine. And some of you said, well, that's kind of unusual. We're called to believe something firmly in order to not be deceived, and yet we're called to have grace and charity when, when, with regards to holding that belief. How is that supposed to work? And we circled around to the idea that we're called to hold this belief with love, and that we need our brothers and sisters who may disagree with us to love us, And we need to be humble enough to suspect or to at least be open to the possibility that we're wrong and and they're right. And yet we're convinced that we're right, okay? You understand those tensions? You say, yeah, pastor, I get it. There's a tension. We're, We're called to have conviction and yet to be open to the fact that we're wrong. That seems unfair. Yes, many things in the Christian life are unfair. That is one of them. We worked our way through this passage, we recognized that there was going to be, as we approached the end, an increasing frequency of hurricanes and earthquakes, that the environment was going to become incredibly destabilized, and indeed, many legitimate, righteous men and women of God who worship God might themselves be caught in natural catastrophes that are a part of the judgment coming on this world. That seems unbelievable fair we also looked at the reality that there will be growing apostasy that will spring up from even within the church and we looked around the room we said you know it's even possible even here at first baptist church that dear brothers and sisters whom we are absolutely completely convinced would never turn their back on jesus christ it's possible that as these dark days of apostasy approach we might encounter such cruel and heartbreaking betrayal that seems unfair And indeed, it is. And then we turned to this last point here in verse 15, the abomination of desolation. We talked about the reality that there is a coming cataclysmic dark time. It is going to be horrific, a period of intense tribulation coming upon the world. And it would persecute, it would single out, it would identify and single out and target specifically Christians. And we hear that and we think to ourselves, that is just so unfair. This is the nature of what it means to walk with Jesus, where our definitions and our ideas of what is fair and what we deserve and what we are entitled to are not necessarily his. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And so as we walk through this passage, whatever ideas or notions of fairness or unfairness that you may have there is no way to read through this all of it discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and continue to hold on to any preconceived idea or notion of what it is that you think you're entitled to and we're going to see more of that today we're going to pick it up i want you to look in verse 29 we're going to start here You'll recall that I am a premillennialist. I believe in a literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I believe that these events being described here in Matthew chapter 24 are yet future. They have not happened yet. They have not taken place. The reason I come to that is because I have looked in verse 15, Jesus' statement regarding the abomination of desolation. I have decided that he is referencing uh, the character described in Daniel chapter 8. That seems so clear and so crystal cut to me. I take that expression along with all of the time markers that are mentioned here immediately after the tribulation of those days when you see this person standing in such and such a place. I understand that the time markers are to be taken literally. I read them literally, I take this expression, the abomination of desolation, as mentioned in verse 15, I take that to be a literal antichrist type figure. And now we come to this section pertaining the the rapture and the resurrection of the church. And we come to a passage, which as a premillennial, when I encounter it, when we come to this verse, I recognize right off the bat that there is no way I can hold everything that I've held up until this point, literally, and then come to this verse and hold it something other than literally. I want you to read with me. Jesus makes a statement in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You're saying, Pastor, you don't take that literally? No, I do, but there are others among us who don't necessarily take that literally. Verse 30 then, is this what you're saying is not to be taken literally? Verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You don't take that literally, Pastor? No, I do take that literally. I believe he's coming for us. I believe everyone will see it, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Verse 31, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You don't take that literally? No, I do. Verse 32, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near so also. When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. There's no reason to take that literally. It's a metaphor to start with. So you're supposed to always understand that metaphorically. But you understand the metaphor in a literal sense that you can identify when the return of Christ is drawing nigh. It's this next verse where if you're premillennial like me, this is your gut check moment. Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That verse, for us as premillennialists, is a gut-check verse. And all the all-mill, post-mill preterists are saying, yeah, that's right, here's where it comes down to. When we consider those who are in different theological camps than us with regards to their view of the end times, it can be tempting, particularly from the premillennial position, to suggest that perhaps they don't take the Bible literally. We interpret these, scrap, the, these particular scriptures and passages in a certain way, and we think that when we're looking at them from the pre-millennial perspective, that we're interpreting these things straight, in a straightforward manner just exactly as they're presented on the page. And when we encounter some of the interpretations and some of the different methods of understanding these passages that are held by individuals who may be of the preterist school, that is the on-mill, post-mill camps, Preterists, you'll recall, is the individuals who view all of the events described here in Matthew chapter 24 as having already taken place around the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They believe that all of these events have already occurred in past time. The reason for that comes down to verse 34. See, you and I as premillennialists, we have to make a decision in regards to how we're going to interpret this passage. As premillennialists, we see these time references. Immediately after this, when you see this. Immediately after those days, then this. When you see all these things taking place, it's like the fig tree. You know he's near, even at the very gates. We see these time references, and we've got to start to figure out what those time references relate to, how they are to work together, and we have to pick a starting point. And so for us in the premillennial camp, we have picked as our starting point, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. You say, that's right, we read this passage literally. But we don't. When we come here to verse 34, there is no way to take this verse at face value for what it would have meant for the 12 disciples who were gathered there. You'll recall their question at the very beginning of the chapter. They said, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your returning and of the close of the age? And Jesus begins to describe all of this stuff. And then if you're one of those 12 and you're sitting there listening to him, he comes to verse 34 and he says, truly I tell you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. If you're Peter, James, or John, do you want to know what your understanding of that verse is? Do you want to know what your takeaway from Jesus in that moment is? It's going to happen in my lifetime. When we interpret scripture, the golden rule, the thing we say over and over and over again, context, 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 which means that when we want to understand a passage of scripture, the first thing we have to discover when we're looking at it is we have to know what it meant to the original audience that heard it. And if we're being brutally honest with ourselves, we come to verse 34, and it sounds an awful lot, if not exactly like what Jesus is saying to the 12 guys who are sitting there with him outside of Jerusalem, just there on the Mount of Olives, looking at all of this stuff. And it sounds like what he's saying to them is, you guys won't die until the end of the world happens. Now, from a premillennialist perspective, we've read it literally all the way through And now we've come to this verse where we have to step back and say, yeah, he's talking to them, but there's a little bit of confusion here. Perhaps what he's referencing is the generation that is still alive or the generation that is alive at the time at which the abomination of desolation shows up. You see, we have to make a decision between two verses. Verse 15, the abomination of desolation, Or verse 34, and here's why we should never ever accuse our on-mill or post-mill brothers and sisters of being liberals and being loosey-goosey with the text. Because for those individuals who approach Matthew chapter 24 and they make the argument that all of these things happened in the first century, the reason why they're arguing that perspective is verse 34, which they have taken Literally. You see, that's what it all boils down to. That's what makes the all of it Discourse so incredibly challenging. If you choose abomination of desolation as your starting point, you come to verse 34, you have to kind of get inventive. Now, I say this with grace, but it's charitable. and It's nevertheless for the fact of the matter. We can't take that at point-blank face value for what it would have meant to the 12 disciples. We just can't. But for our preterist friends, that is the all-mill, post-mill guys and gals, they look at this passage and they say, we've got to start somewhere in terms of how we're going to pick this thing apart. And they choose verse 34, and they take it literally. So when you take verse 34 literally, you have to look at all these other things symbolically. If you're going to take verse 15 literally, you come to verse 34, you're going to have to start picking that apart and coming up with some sort of a creative way to understand that verse. This is the struggle. This is why we need to have humility as we approach this particular passage. So Jesus says, heaven and earth, uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Say, what's your take on that, pastor? And I admit, this is an arbitrary decision. And I hope that my post-mill and all-mill preterist friends can say the same thing, that they have the courage to be honest We look at all of this evidence. we got to decide for ourselves as individuals what seems the most clear to us. At the end of the day, it can be a coin toss. Does verse 15 seem clear? Does verse 34 seem clear? This is the struggle that we have. This is why we're called to have humility. Taking that this passage was fulfilled in the first century in its entirety. You come back to verse 29 and you'll recall when we introduced this passage immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You recall that I said how in the world you posed the question how in the world did that happen in the first century? And the interpretation is offered that this is what is referred to as phenomenological language. It's hyperbole. It's a statement that is given and intended to convey a certain idea, but it doesn't mean that it happened literally. We didn't literally see in the first century stars falling from the heavens and the sun darkened and the moon not giving. It's light. Like we didn't see those things. And so it's understood to be phenomenological language. And they, they look to different passages in the Old Testament in which when everything is going really, really well in the nation of Israel, the hills are described as dancing and the grass is described as swaying with joy, and then you find other passages in the Old Testament when Israel is carted off into exile, when they're when they're ex- exiled to Babylon. You find other passages where it says that you know the trees are grieving and the stars are saddened and all of this sort of thing. And that's not necessarily stuff that has happened literally. It's all to be understood as being metaphorical. So the Preterist, that is the All Mill Post Mill guy, they says this stuff happened in the life of the apostles. And so when we encounter this passage right here, it's not to be understood literally. It's to be understood metaphorically. And so for those of you who are here, you're like, well, could it be literal? It could. And I argue that it is. In the book of Numbers, a prophecy was made about the coming Messiah. It said a star will rise on Judah, and out of Jacob, a scepter will come forth. And at the birth of Jesus, Magi, living way in the east, saw in the night sky something happen in the celestial heavens above. They saw something happening in the stars. And Matthew is quite clear and quite explicit. Matthew, being written to Jews, taking a passage in the Old Testament, which we would have probably have just assumed was pure metaphor, and he understood it literally. And these three magi understood it literally. And they came and they beheld the birth of Jesus because of a literal interpretation. So you look at this verse in verse 29. Could it be literal? Could it be metaphorical? Could it be just a way of describing how bad things are going to be? It could be either or. There's no reason to say it's not literal if you're going to hold to the fact that these events have not yet happened. Could it also be that this is just a description of how bad things were in Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? absolutely could it be a combination of the two that as well that as well and we're going to see that in the weeks ahead this near far fulfillment of scripture the very next verse says then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one one end of heaven to the other. I want you to just stick your finger right there in Matthew chapter 24. I want you to flip over with me to the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 5, verse 1, I beg your pardon, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul's statement of the church at Thessalonica, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He uses this word asleep to describe the status of Christians who have died. They haven't actually died in Paul's mind because he believes in the resurrection. So he describes them rather as sleeping. He says, concerning those who are asleep, we don't want you to be uninformed, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's statement here to the church at Thessalonica, he says, when you have a loved one who passes away, when you have a loved one who dies, here's another way to describe it. They haven't died if they worshipped Christ. They haven't passed away if they had trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They are, in Paul's estimation, just asleep, waiting to come back to life, waiting to be restored, waiting to be awakened. We shouldn't mourn the death of Christians the way that we should absolutely grieve and mourn the death of those who do not know Christ. For those who are in Christ, they just sleep, but for those who are not in Christ they have died in the truest sense of the word. Paul goes on, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. So Paul there hints at the fact that there will be Christians on this earth who will still be alive. They have not fallen asleep. They are alive. They are awake, and Christ returns. His statement is, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ, those who have died, those who are, as he says earlier in the passage, sleeping. They will rise first. They will come back to life first. Verse 17, then we who are still alive, who are left... We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul's statement here to the church of Thessalonica is that the return of Christ is going to be something so spectacular, no one's going to miss it. Not even those individuals who have gone asleep, who have passed on to be with the Lord in heaven. The teaching of scripture is that when the rapture happens, when the resurrection takes place, the Christians of this world, both past and present and future, all believers in Christ everywhere, will have the front row seat to the coming of the Lord. Everybody who's a Christian will be present, and those who are alive on the earth in these last dark days who are not Christians, who do not worship Jesus, they also will get a front row seat. But it's not the front row seat that you want. It's from the other side of the field, so to speak. You see it firsthand. You're going to encounter it firsthand. But for the Christians who worship Christ, they're going to see it and experience it firsthand with Christ as he returns to this earth. Look at what it says here in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And we recall from last week, it flashes, lightning flashes from east to west then those who are dead in Christ will be raptured, they will be resurrected, they will be caught up into the air with the Lord, and those who are still alive after the other guys go, then we get to go if we're still alive when he comes. And everybody's going to be with the Lord. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that we will always be with the Lord forevermore, never to die again. But now consider it from the perspective of those who do not know the Lord. Verse 30 then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will mourn. and They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This past week, I was meeting with my friend Harry Little, another esteemed gentleman who has served this church for decades with honor and distinction. He asked if I would come and meet with him. He wanted to plan out some of the specific details regarding his funeral. Harry, you may recall, is 99 years old and he's been with this church since the mid-50s. So we sat down and we got to talking and I said to him, Brother Harry, is there any favorite passage that you like, that you would like for me to preach? And he hinted at something that was very, very clear in my mind because I had just heard this comment made Tuesday night up in the Logan Lake Care Group. The comment was made you know, as a girl growing up in church, as a Christian coming up in the church, we talked an awful lot about sin and death and the reality that all of this world is under a curse and we need forgiveness. And we talked an awful lot about the cross and the fact that Jesus provides us forgiveness on the cross. But you know what sort of got short shrift or or maybe wasn't even mentioned really hardly at all? The fact of the resurrection. I had heard that comment Tuesday night, and then I went out to meet with my friend Harry on Thursday, and I said, I said Brother Harry, what, what passage? What's your favorite passage? And he referred me to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if in this life we have hoped in Christ only, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are of all men the most to be pitied. He said, I want you to say whatever you want to say, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, but he says, lead with the resurrection. He said, a gospel that talks about the cross but omits or overlooks or downplays the significance of the resurrection is not the full gospel. Amen? There is a reason that we need forgiveness. But there is a glorious promise to what Christ is doing on this earth regardless of whether or not men and women come to him for forgiveness. The fact is, he has a plan and a purpose that moves beyond forgiveness. It includes forgiveness, and the cross is at the heart of it. But the flip side to that coin, the complementary piece, is that he is going to achieve in creation that which he had always purposed to do. From the moment he said, let there be light. From the moment he said, let there be trees and plants and green things. From the moment that he separated the day from the night, the waters from the earth, our Father in heaven has always had a plan that... That men would rule this earth and he intends to achieve it with or without us. Now he calls us to the waters. He calls us to meet him there. He wants to forgive us. But for you and I who have trusted in Jesus it has started with our forgiveness. But the good news is this it ends with us enjoying life the way our creator created us initially to always have enjoyed it. With him. Walking with him, talking with him as it was in the days of the Garden of Eden before the fall. That is what our Lord purposed for us. As we come to the end, as I came to the end of my conversation with Brother Harry, He said, thank you, Pastor, for coming and visiting me. Now that I've gotten my affairs in order regarding my funeral, I can turn my thoughts and my prayers to the next step. I said, well, what will you be thinking about when you get to heaven? Will you be looking forward to seeing some of your loved ones? And he said, yeah, there's that. He says, I am looking forward to that but I'm going to be praying about when I step foot back on this earth again someday. This Christian life that you and I live, it truly is unfair. Among other things, we get grace that we don't deserve. We escape punishment that we do deserve. And we get to walk again with the Lord. We get a second chance at a life that will never end. So if you find yourself thinking this Christian life is unfair, you don't know how right you are. And there's a day coming in which you will be so glad that it is so unfair. Let us live this unfair Christian life together. Brothers and sisters, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the unfair Christian life that you have blessed us with. We thank you, Lord, that because of your grace and your mercy, we get a second chance to walk this sod. We thank you because of your grace and your mercy and the resurrection of your son from the grave conquering over death. We, Lord, get to experience life very soon in the fullest sense in which you intended it to be enjoyed, without the fear and the threat of death. We look forward to that. We look forward to the promised rapture. We look forward to the coming of your Son. Lord, we say thank you that this life is so unfair. Thank you for your unfair goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you please rise with us as you're able?